Welcome to the weekly sermons and studies podcast at First Baptist. Today's speaker is our senior pastor, Dr. Jeff Reynolds. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. And we are so remarkably thankful for your love for us. Lord, for were it not for your love for us, we would not love you. You moved first, and we are so grateful. And we are so thankful that for every one of us who is in Jesus Christ, every one of us who has repented of sin and crossed the line of faith, trusting and following Jesus, that you have us in your grasp, and you will not let us go. And so, Lord, in that spirit and with that understanding, we come now to your word. And we pray that in the presence of your Holy Spirit, as we turn to your Holy Word, that you would transform us by the renewing of our minds and make us more like Jesus today. For it's in his precious and holy name that we pray. Amen. One of the analogies that the Bible uses repeatedly about our journey of trusting and following Jesus is that of a race. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. It's one of my favorite passages in the whole Bible, but the writer of Hebrews encourages us to lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely and to run with endurance the race that is set before us, and that as we do, we should look to Jesus, who is the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the race to which he was called. And the Apostle Paul picks up this illustration as well in his last letter to Timothy, his beloved son in the faith. And in the last chapter of that last letter, the Apostle Paul says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Just as the Apostle Paul had his race to run, so also do all of us who are in Christ. We have a race to run. And and just as Paul looked forward to what awaited him at the end of that race, and remember what he said, now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So if we are in Christ, what awaits us is glory in the presence of Almighty God, everlasting life eternal glory, a glory that the Bible says far outweighs any suffering we could ever face in this world. That's what's coming. And so the Bible talks about our race. That race has a beginning point and it has an ending point. The beginning point is vitally important. You know, as I dropped my son off at Camp Lucon yesterday morning, pulling into Camp Lucon is sacred for me because it was at Camp Lucon during a new song festival, that I heard the preacher at the festival who preached out of Philippians chapter 1 saying, for to me, Paul writes, to live is Christ and to die is gain. That captured my 12-year-old mind. How could dying in any way be gain? But that's what the message of Jesus gives us. And so I was captivated by that, and, and the preacher opened up an altar call at the end of the service, and there was no way I was going forward, and I didn't. But that night, in my bedroom, I prayed, repenting of my sin and giving my life to Jesus Christ. And I believe in that moment that I began my journey of faith in Jesus. 
And it's vitally important that you have a beginning. If you've never begun your faith with Jesus, you've never repented of your sin and received Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, you're still separated from God in sin. Hell awaits, but it doesn't have to. All you have to do is turn to Christ in repentance and faith. And Jesus, I believe you are the Savior, and I believe I am a sinner. So I come to you humbly and place my faith in you, Jesus. Come into my life. Forgive me of my sin. I trust you, and I'll follow you. That's the starting line. That's how you begin your journey of faith. That's how you start your race. And then the Bible says there's the end with that blessed promise of everlasting life in Jesus Christ. But in between the starting line and the finishing line, there's an entire race to run. And James is going to help us understand better how to run it today. It's interesting that the writer of Hebrews tells us to fix our eyes on Jesus, to look to Jesus, to look continually to Jesus, because that's what the race requires. You know, when I was younger, I thought of the race of my faith, the journey of my faith, more like a sprint. Now, maybe it was a long sprint, like a 400-meter or an 800-meter, but I thought of it as a sprint. And that makes sense because I was young. The older I get, the more I'm learning that the race of our faith is an endurance event. And there's a difference. Some of you in this room are big fans of endurance events, and you know that there's a big difference between a 100-meter, 200-meter, 300-meter, 400-meter sprint and a half marathon or a marathon, or some of you crazy people go even further. You know there's a difference. When you're running an endurance event, the race kind of has seasons in it. You you feel better at times and worse at times. You have uphill portions and downhill portions, and occasionally, just occasionally, you'll have a flat portion. And your, your brain plays tricks on you because you have time to think about it. And you're constantly processing, what is my body saying to me? And, and how do I need to, to change the way I'm running this race? How do I need to correct what I'm doing so that I can reach the finish line? It's a different thing altogether. The first time I ever ran a half marathon, I almost choked to death at the first water station because I had never practiced how to drink water from a cup while running. And it turned out that it not only went in my mouth, but it went in just about every hole in my head. And uh, I didn't know if I was, but thankfully I was able to persevere. It's just, it's a different experience. Well, our race of faith in Christ is like an endurance event. And there are going to be highs and lows. There are seasons. There are seasons of joys and sorrows. There are portions of the race we don't want to run. And if given the choice of running up a hill or on a flat stretch. We would choose the flat stretch, but sometimes, sometimes God calls us to run up a hill, doesn't He? And sometimes when we reach those water stations, we feel like we don't need anything. But when Pastor David Tooley was training for his marathon, the training manual said, stop at every single water station, whether you think you need it or not, because at some point around mile 20, you'll wish you had. And so we nourish ourselves, we hydrate ourselves, we rest ourselves, and we have to persevere. That's the journey of faith. But it requires consistent course correction to make sure we're headed in the right direction. James is going to help us with that today. And as you have gotten used to James, he's going to be very straightforward. So I want to invite you to turn with me to James chapter 4. 
James chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 1 through 10 today. This is our last Sunday on page 1012 in the Red Pew Bible in front of you. Next week, we will be on page 1013, and we'll stay there for a minute. But James is going to help us understand what this looks like. How do I course correct in my race of faith in Jesus Christ? Well, he's going to call us to submit to God. He's going to call us to submit to God, to surrender ourselves to the Lordship of Jesus. That's how we refocus on Jesus. That's how we fix our eyes on Jesus. Once again, we come back and we surrender ourselves to the Lordship of Christ in every moment, every step, whether we're going up a hill, down a hill, or it's flat, whether we're coming up on a hydration station or we're getting ready to pull out our first little goo packet to give us the nourishment, wherever we are on the race, our call is consistently and constantly to look to Jesus. And looking to Jesus means surrendering to His will for my life. Looking to Jesus means submitting to His Lordship over me. So James is going to teach us. Our theme today is by faith we submit to God. By faith we submit to God. And James, who is the brother of Jesus, writes as he is carried along by the Holy Spirit in James chapter 4 saying this. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Our first point today is this. By faith, we resist ungodly urges. By faith, we resist ungodly urges. Now, remember last week, James just talked about sowing righteousness. And how do we sow righteousness? We sow righteousness in peace. And immediately, he then changes the paragraph and asks the question, what causes quarrels and fights among you? And here's what I'm going to tell you. Quarrels and fights are not the root problem. Quarrels and fights are a symptom of the root problem. The root problem is our own internal unchecked passions. He talks about our passions that are raging within us, and that word in the original language is hedone. Hedone. That kind of sounds like a word in English, hedonism. And that's exactly the root word of our English word, hedonism, or hedonistic, where pleasure and the pursuit of pleasure is the sum total of life. Well, that's the idea here. This, this word, hedone, means the satisfaction of a physical appetite, and it always carries a negative connotation. It's about the pursuit of pleasure for pleasure itself, the pursuit of pleasure with pleasure as the end in mind. And it can lead us to some pretty dark places. The word appears five times in the Bible. Here in James chapter 4, it appears in verse 1 and verse 3. But it appears in Titus chapter 3, verse 3 is, as the Bible says, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. Is it possible to become enslaved to our various passions and pleasures? Is it possible to become enslaved to pleasing the flesh in the moment? And we call that addiction. And you can be addicted to a lot of things. But what fuels addiction? What fuels addiction is the desire to be pleased, the desire to have pleasure, whatever that addiction may be. Or in 2 Peter, the Apostle Peter writes, 
about false prophets and teachers. He says, but these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as, they wage, as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. So notice Peter talking about people seeking to, to feed these pleasures. He talks about people who are like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, and how do animals react? I love my dog. She's amazing. She is the canine equivalent of a minivan. If you see me walking my little foo-foo dog, you know I'm a married guy and I have kids because she's got curly little permed looking hair and she is an oodle. And if your dog ends in oodle, okay? But I love her. She's wonderful. She's worthless. You think of Elvis' song, she has never caught a rabbit. She's tried to chase a few, never caught one, but I love her. And she is amazing, and she's my puppy. But sometimes, to get her to come in, I have to bribe her. You want a cookie? And do you know what she'll do for a cookie? Pretty much anything I want her to do. Because why? She's an animal. She functions according to instinct. She is not rational in her thought. She wants what she wants right now, and you can bribe her with a cookie. Right? That, that hunters, how do you get a turkey to come in? You talk sweet to the turkey, but not in your language, in the turkey's language. You gobble at the turkey, and the turkey, how do you get a deer to come in? Well, you offer the deer the opportunity for food, or the opportunity for a fight, or the opportunity for the prospect of reproduction. That's how you get a deer to come in. Why? Because it's a creature of instinct. That's what they're looking for. And if we function as creatures of instinct, just seeking to meet our pleasures, then well, we can face the same sort of destruction that a turkey or a deer might face. In explaining the parable of the sower, Jesus said that the seed that fell among the thorns, you remember that seed that fell among the thorns? He said they are those who hear, and they, as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. Same word. Can our seeking our pleasure choke out faith in our lives? Well, of course it can. And I'll tell you, if you're in that place in your, in your journey of faith, in your race, you got to course correct. you got to come back and remember that it is Jesus who said that if we were going to follow him, we had to deny ourselves. We had to take up our cross. We had to follow him, and it wasn't always going to be easy, and it wasn't always going to be pleasurable, and, and sometimes God would call us to things that we didn't feel like doing in the moment, but that's the race we've been called to run. So what do we do as we run our race? We resist ungodly urges. James continues in verse 4. He says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealousy, jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Our second point. By faith, we return to God. By faith, we return to God. Throughout the Bible, God uses this theme of adultery in talking about his people turning away from him to worship other gods. 
throughout the Old Testament. He uses it in Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 6. It says, during the reign of King Josiah, the Lord said to me, have you seen what fickle Israel has done? Like a wife who commits adultery, Israel has worshiped other gods on every hill and under every green tree. Or in Ezekiel chapter 23, verse 38, God says, for they have committed adultery and blood is on their hands. They committed adultery with their idols. They even sacrificed their children whom they bore to me as food for them. Or the the whole book of the prophet Isaiah, where God has commanded, or not Isaiah, Hosea. God has commanded Hosea to marry a woman who is adulterous. And in Hosea 3, verse 1, it says, The Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins this relentless love of God, though His people continually turn away. Well, just as His people turned away in the Old Testament, guess what we do in the New Testament? Guess what we do in 2022? We continually turn away. We continually seek out other gods, little g gods. Now, we may not bow down and worship some deity, but how often do we turn away from Almighty God to seek anything else? to devote ourselves to anything else. That's what he's talking about. We get caught up in idolatry. He calls us to return. His love is relentless for us, and his call is always return to me, return to me, return to me. You can't serve two masters. You can't have a divided heart. When James mentions having a divided heart, The word is dipsukos, dipsukos, having a divided mind. The the word literally means di pasuke. It is is two-souled. You have two souls. Your soul is split. You're heading in different directions. No, you have to choose. Am I going to chase after the world, the flesh, the devil? Or am I going to come back? to the one who so loved me that he gave his only begotten son for me. Which will it be? You can't serve two masters. And and so many of us have tried. Have you ever tried? Have you ever tried to have a foot in the church and a foot in the world and just see how it goes? And it never goes well. Why? Because you're too sold, double-minded, divided-hearted. No, God calls us to devotion to Him that is pure, that it is unadulterated. How about that? That our devotion to Him is to be pure because His devotion to us is pure, and He desires to be in this amazing relationship with us, but we're never going to embrace the amazing relationship as long as we try to have one foot in the world and one foot with our Lord. Choose ye this day whom you will serve. So, what do we do? We return to God. We humble ourselves before Him and we return. Well, James is going to get pretty graphic about how we do that. So James chapter 4, verses 6 through 10. You're going to, as we read this, you're going to see great encouragement and great challenge all at the same time. Watch this. Verse 6. But He, God, gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. 
Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. Our third and final point today is this. By faith, we repent in humility. By faith, we repent in humility. What James just outlined for us is what repentance looks like. He really did. He talks about the grace of God. God gives more grace, and this is amazing. This is amazing because it all begins with the grace of God. The Bible says in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, that it is the kindness of Almighty God that leads us to repentance. Did you know that? You know, so often we hear about the fire and the brimstone and all those sorts of things, and those have their place. Fire and brimstone absolutely have their place to kind of scare us straight, to, to get us shaken that the end to which we are headed is not good. But did you know that the Bible says, this is Romans chapter 2, verse 4, that it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It is the grace of God expressed toward us. And it leads us to change our lives. That word in the Greek is metanoia. That's what repent is, metanoia. And the actual word itself means a change of the mind. So what does repentance look like? Well, I start by changing my mind to agree with God. See, I tend to justify myself. I don't know about you. I tend to justify my thoughts. I tend to justify my actions. I tend to justify everything there is to justify about me because, well, I think I'm right. Don't you? But when I repent, that means I change my mind to agree with God that what He has called sinful in me really is sinful. So that's where it starts, but that's not where it ends. I change my mind to agree with God, but then James gives us this framework. 4-6, chapter 4, verse 6. He says he gives more grace. Therefore, he says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So the first step is I relinquish my pride and I humble myself before God. He says in verse 7, submit yourselves therefore to God. So the second step would be that I submit myself, perhaps again, to the authority of Almighty God through Jesus Christ, my Lord. He says, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And so the third step is that I resist the devil who is seeking to pressure me to remain in my sin and in my firm conviction that I'm fine. He says, resist the devil. And how do we resist the devil? We resist the devil in the strength of God's might, according to Ephesians chapter 6. We don't stand against him in our own strength. He's bigger than us. But we stand in God's strength. We resist the devil, and the devil flees from us. He says, draw near to God in verse 8, and God will draw near to you. So the fourth step, I draw near to God in prayer and in practice. I worship him. I pray, perhaps I fast, I serve him. And then he says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Number five, I ask God to cleanse my dirty hands and to heal my divided heart. I don't want to be double-minded. I don't want to be divided in my affections and in my devotion. I want my devotion to be pure. He says, be wretched. 
and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Number six, I mourn over my sin, understanding how hurtful it is to God and how harmful it is to me. But also remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. I mourn over my sin, recognizing how hurtful it is to God and how harmful it is to me, and I repent. And in verse 10, he says, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Number seven, in humility, I trust God to raise me up according to his sovereign will and his matchless love for me. I refuse to exalt myself. Instead, I trust my life to his hands. You know, it may be that as you run your race, you're in need of a course correction. You're still held by the almighty love of God. His love will not let you go. But his love will constantly call all of us to come back to him. Return to me. Return to me, he cries. And that's how we do it. We humble ourselves. We resist our ungodly urges. We, we return to him. And we repent in humility, saying, God, you're Lord over me. You are my Savior, my Redeemer, my Master. I trust you, and I want to follow you. By your grace, help me do that better in each moment of my life. Thank you for listening, and we hope you'll join us next time. We'd love to connect with you. Just email connect at firstbaptistbg.org or call 270-842-0331.